The White House has released a transcript of the speech President Barack Obama plans to make at the Democratic Convention tonight. Here are some excerpts. Quote, Good evening, everybody. It's wonderful to stand before you today, knowing that I will not be running for re-election and can finally say whatever I want to say about Hillary Clinton. As you may recall, in the primaries eight years ago, I beat Hillary like a drum. Or maybe it was more like an old wrinkly blanket hanging from a laundry line or like a dusty rug. But the point is, when I was done with her, there was barely anything left but a pantsuit and a few straggly hanks of dyed blonde hair. That Hillary Clinton could survive a humiliating trouncing like that and come back ready for a fight is an inspiring tribute to her will to power, which reminds me of one of those supervillains in the Marvel comics who will stop at nothing to achieve their goals, even if it means wiping out an entire city or blowing the planet to smithereens. Just watching Hillary continue to scratch and claw toward the nomination after enduring the excruciating embarrassment of having a 74-year-old socialist come this close to derailing her campaign, well, it was like watching that opening episode of The Walking Dead where the half-eaten corpse of a woman keeps pulling her putrid, rotten body through the grass, powered by nothing but ravening hunger. Who could fail to be inspired by something like that? After the head of the FBI stood up in front of the entire nation and called Hillary a liar again and again and again and again and, yes, I would have to say again, to have Hillary still continue to be willing to show her face in public as long as it meant there was some small chance she might get her claws on the reins of power, it should remind us all of what made this country great. Or maybe what made this country great was honorable men risking their lives to establish a new idea of freedom, but I'm sure there's some similarity. Eh, Maybe not. Anyway, whether Hillary goes forward to become the blackmailed puppet of Vladimir Putin before getting impeached for perjury, or whether she loses to an orange-haired orangutan who by all rights shouldn't be able to win an election for dog catcher, you can bet that I'm going to get a laugh out of it, and after next January, that's pretty much all I care about, unquote. After the White House released the transcript of the president's planned remarks, the three major networks released their transcripts of their planned analysis of the remarks. ABC will call the speech an uplifting, inspiring end to this chapter in a historic president's magnificent career. CBS will call it an inspiring and uplifting end to a magnificent president's chapter in history. And NBC will call it a magnificent end of inspiring uplift in an uplifting chapter of inspiration of magnificence history, uplift, magnificent, inspiration, president. The network commentators have pre-recorded their their analysis so they can watch Real Housewives of New York City instead of suffering through the speech itself. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. (laughs) Yeah, they just just send out those words, you know, dark, magnificent, uplifting. Anyway, here's my question. Is Bill Clinton's speech over yet? <laughs> I'm listening to this thing. In 19, it was July 1970. No, wait a minute. It was, it was, I think it was August 1977. Wait, no, no, it was July. It was July. <laughs> please, please stop. Kill me now. You know, I was thinking by the end of it, by the end of it, I felt like, Mommy, why do we have to have Uncle Bill to Thanksgiving? He just talks and talks and talks. You know? It's like, be quiet. Uncle Bill used to be president. He's very important. I don't, I don't like the way he tickles me. It makes me feel funny. <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> 
That was kind of what I was hoping. You know, I was, I was stuck in L.A. traffic yesterday, so I'm, I'm listening on the radio, and I can't stand it, so I keep turning off the speech, and then I'll drive for like another 40 minutes, and I'll turn it back on, and it'll be like, 1986, I think it was. <laughs> please, you know, please, please stop. And so, so I was hoping that it would just go on so long. You know, as an old man, I was hoping it would go so, on so long, his mind would begin to drift, and he would start telling the real story, you know, like that, yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that was the year I was with Betty, you know? I'm sorry. Betty on the side. Oh, you should have seen Betty. We called her Betty with the booty. Betty, I used to say to Betty, Betty, that must be jelly because jam don't shake that way. Oh, wait a minute. What am I saying? <laughs> Back to what I was, 1986. And you'll notice, by the way, the one year, the one year that doesn't show up is the Monica Lewinsky year because that's the, that's the one year we all knew he was having an affair as opposed to all the other. Anyway, we'll get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I probably, I should, like I, the look on Lindsay's face, stop ad-libbing. You're going to say something really bad. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe too late. Maybe too late. All right. It's mailbag day. All right. And so you people who are watching on Facebook, you will get us live for 15 minutes, but mailbag day comes at the end. So you have to, you have to hang over and come over to the Daily Wire. And there you can hear us, but you can't see us unless you subscribe which costs $7.99 a month. I was told it's not $8, it's $7.99 a month. And what you can do with that penny, I can't even mention on the air. <laughs> but, but you subscribe, and then you get to be in the mailbag. It's like you can send us stuff in the mailbag, so it's great. And while I have you here, let me just put in a quick plug for my memoir, which is coming out in September. It's called The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, and you can pre-order it as you're sitting there, at your computer, watching this on Facebook. Go over to Amazon and look up Clavin, The Great Good Thing, and pre-order it because you will like it. It is a, uh, a really good story, I think. All right. So Hillary Clinton is now the historic, historical, historic nominee of a historic nominee convention, historic for both people. So Bernie Sanders in, you know, they had this two hour, I think it went on for two hours where they were taking the roll call vote and they got to Vermont. I mean, couldn't he have been, a, you know, a senator in Alabama? So we could have gotten to it after. And then Bernie Sanders in this dramatic, uh, you know, expression of unity stands up and says, we, we don't have to take the rest of the votes. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Senator Sanders has moved in the spirit of unity to suspend the rules. To suspend the rules and nominate Hillary Clinton by acclamation as the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party. Say aye. Aye. Oppose no. The ayes have it. Hey, 
Okay, so, so that's how they, and you can see the millennials, the Bernie millennials crying, and they're, you know, it's like, man up, for God's sake, you know, we're going to have to, leave, you know, the rest of us are leaving this world, it's going to be left to you, you got to stop, stop crying over silly stuff. Anyway, you know, but, but. You know, you got to give them credit. That's how that's done, right? That is what the Demo- the Republicans couldn't do, and it helped that Hillary Clinton never said that Bernie Sanders was going to assass- had assassinated John F. Kennedy, and Bernie Sanders probably did. You know, <laughs> he was probably on the grassy knoll. You know, but she never said it, and so they could they could move to unity. And I, as I was driving around, and I was driving around a lot yesterday because the traffic was terrible. You know, I, I was dialing through and listening to the various right wing commentators, and I won't mention which ones, but I heard basically all the big ones, and they're all going through this routine that right wing commentators do about principle. You know, they sold out, and, and people in the audience were screaming. By the way, they were screaming yet not uh, yesterday, but the day before, they were screaming at uh, you know all the left wingers, uh, Bernie, everybody. You know, we trusted you, we trusted, and now you're betraying us. But you know, this is what politics is like, folks. You know, and I think that the right has burned itself, has burned itself by doing this principle routine because. Because it's a misunderstanding of what principle is. Principle is a direction that you move in. Principle is a direction you move in, but in real life, you compromise. You have to get to that direction by zigzagging. You know, you have to get to your goals by zigzagging. And so we've done this thing where we had principles, and then and then when Jeb Bush or uh, Paul Ryan does something we don't like, he's a traitor, he's the worst, he's terrible, and that's how you end up with a clown like Donald Trump in charge of your party because you know you can, you don't compromise, but you got to compromise. A guy like Mitt Romney, listen, my principles, my principles are far right. My principles are far right, almost entirely. But in politics, you know. You're dealing with a bunch of people, some of whom disagree with you. What are you going to do? You can't have everything you want, so you move the ball in the direction you can go. And that's what the Democrats are doing. I don't know if it's going to work because I, because the DNC, once we saw that the DNC was working against Bernie, a lot of Bernie voters, I think, are going to be disenfranchised and alienated. Then Hillary comes down. She, they play a video of Hillary. It looked like 1984 to me, this gigantic, gigantic picture of Hillary. But she bursts through the glass ceiling. There's this shattering of glass, and then there she is. Not that she's playing the woman card or anything like that, but listen to this. I am so happy. It's been a great day and night. What an incredible honor that you have given me. And I can't believe we just put the biggest crack in that glass ceiling yet. Thanks to you and to everyone who's fought so hard to make this possible. This is really your victory. This is really your night. And if there are any little girls out there who stayed up late to watch, let me just say, I may become the first woman president, but one of you is next. Thank you all. I can't wait to join you in Philadelphia. Thank you. And they pull back. See, what I thought she was going to say, if there are any little girls out there, run, my husband is coming. Get to the exits now, now. <laughs> Instead, they pull back and are all, I mean, come on, you know, it's like, uh, all right, but she's got to play everything she has. And then, and then they had also, the thing starts, I mean, they, this was just a collection of reprobates, right? She is someone the FBI has called a, law, uh, a liar. Bill Clinton has been accused of rape. And then we have the mothers of the movement. Oh, gosh. I mean, these are the the women who have lost. I mean, it, it is, and it's pitiful. It's, it's heartbreaking. They've lost sons and daughters to violent uh, action, sometimes by the police, sometimes not, you know, but uh, one here is Trayvon Martin, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's uh, mother. But I am here today for my son, Trayvon Martin, who is in heaven. 
and also for his brother, Javaris Fulton, who is still here on earth. I did not want this spotlight, but I will do everything I can to focus some of this light on the pain of a path out of the darkness. Hillary Clinton has the compassion and understanding to support grieving mothers. She has the courage to lead the fight for common sense gun legislation. She has a plan, she has a plan to divide that so often exists between law enforcement and the communities that they serve. This isn't about being politically correct. This is about saving our children. Now, I don't, I don't want to pick on the woman's pain and all this stuff, but first of all, they have the picture. If you couldn't see, they have the picture of Trayvon Martin with a hoodie on. You know, the kid, kid was a thug, and he was putting stuff on Facebook about making drugs and all this stuff. And he was... Yeah, you know, I know. you know, when when I was in the brief period when I was a newspaper reporter, we, uh, you know, reporters are like cops. They see so much bad stuff. They have to make jokes about things. And whenever there was like, you know, some guy would get arrested or kill somebody, you know, you'd get a call from his mother, and we could all do the interview. We were about he was a good boy, you know, because everybody was a good boy. You know, Hitler played with toys. Everybody, you know, everybody is a kid. That's why we have mothers. We have mothers so somebody will like us, you know. And like, I'm, so I'm not taking that away from. I just want to hit the disparity, though, between the way this is covered, okay? Let's, let's just take a quick look at Van Jones, his reaction to this whole thing. Powerful, powerful, powerful witness um, calling for peace. No, they said they don't want hatred. They said they want mutual respect. They said they want people to come together. Can you imagine losing your child and then standing before the country with a year later with love and trying to fight for redemption? Yeah, you know, too many funerals, too many funerals, too much violence, um, not, and not just from the police, too many funerals. And we have too much ritual in this community based on, on funerals, based on. So, so, OK, you know, they're selling this false narrative about what's happening in the country and they're using these mothers. And remember, and suddenly these mothers are sacrosanct, of course, to the press, to every station, they're sacrosanct. You remember how Maureen Dowd, when Cindy Sheehan was protesting the war in Iraq and Cindy Sheehan's son had died in Iraq and Maureen Dowd said, oh, her moral authority is absolute because she buried her son, her moral. Well, I just want to point out that that moral authority wasn't so absolute when Patricia Smith stood up at the Republican convention and talked about her son, who was a civil servant, you know, a public servant who was killed in Benghazi and blamed Hillary Clinton for that. Here was Chris Matthews in one of the uglier moments of an ugly career. You know, first he starts out by saying, oh, they had some real warriors there. Why did they need her? They had some real warriors. And then he says this. And then to pile on to that, this gross accusation that somehow Hillary Clinton had anything to do with the death of Chris Stevens, Ambassador, she had nothing to do with it. Even if all the arguments about the PR afterwards, as Gene pointed out, are true. Worst case scenario, she didn't give a straight story afterwards. That had nothing to do with the death of...
great ambassador over there. I don't understand why the Republicans would choose to put this on primetime television when they have such wonderful stories of American heroism to speak to the American people. I think it was wrong. I don't care what that woman up there, the mother, has felt. Her emotions are her own. But for the country, in choosing a leader, it's wrong to have someone come up there and tell a lie about Hillary Clinton. I don't care what that woman has felt. we got to say goodbye to our Facebook friends. Come over to The Daily Wire and hear the rest of the show. I don't care what that woman has felt her emotions are her own. Well, okay, you know, fair enough. If that's the way we're going to do it, let's do it with these mothers of the movement as well, and let's just look at the facts. And we're going to do that tomorrow because Heather McDonald is going to be here, her great new book, The War and Cops, which is a bestseller. Uh, Heather is my colleague at the Manhattan Institute City Journal, and uh, as I have said repeatedly, one of the best reporters in the country. If not, she may be the best reporter in the country. She's certainly up there uh, in the top. So let's talk about Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton gets up and he gives the speech, and it is the entire story of, of their life. And it's so romanticized that, that Rachel Maddow, is that her name, on MSNBC, is insulted by it, the fact that it's not feminist because he talks about he met this girl, and I met this girl, you know, and it's all about her relationship and his, how she was a mom. And Rachel Maddow was insulted because he was telling this romantic story. <clears throat> I mean, look. We all know this is a marriage in name only. We know this, but he just told it, and people were screaming and everything like this. So here's, here's Bill Clinton as he basically puts forward this message, and we'll talk about why it's this message. Hillary is uniquely qualified to seize the opportunities and reduce the risk we face. And she is still the best darn changemaker I have ever known. You could drop her. You could drop her into any trouble spot. Pick one. Come back in a month, and somehow, some way, she will have made it better. That is just who she is. So, <laughs> just, she just makes things better wherever she goes. That's who she is. And the thing about this is she, he, kept, he had to call her a change maker because here's this desiccated old hag who's been in government in our faces for 50 years. And the press, the press spin on this is that they're making us, she's the best known unknown person in America. We don't really know her. We don't really know the real Hillary Clinton. You know, that's true because we, can, we can't catch her in the act. You know, if we could just catch her in the act, we would know the real Hillary Clinton. So that's the thing. He's selling hope and shame. But the thing is to tell this story as if it were a great romance when all of us know all of us know what he was doing in the Oval Office, before the Oval Office, after, afterward. He supposedly has been dogging around on that, that uh, plane that's called the Lolita Express or something like this. Who could be so gullible to fall for a speech like this? This is a word I keep hearing tonight about Bill Clinton. Heartwarming. He had a job to do, and they said he did it well. They said many people feel, you've heard this many times, that Hillary Clinton is the most famous person that you don't know. Well, Bill Clinton wanted us to know about her. He took us on a very long chronology of their lives. Clearly a very proud husband. Nora and Scott, back to you guys. 
That's right. Bill Clinton, the storytelling with all his lip biting, too. It was vintage Bill Clinton. I have to tell you, sitting out here, this felt very much like Bill Clinton telling a family story at a bar or around the dinner table at a holiday. It was a play-by-play -play of their lives, and he started by saying, I met a girl back in the spring of 1971, talking about the three times that he had to propose to her before Hillary Clinton finally said yes. We knew this was going to be a personal story, but we didn't know that this was going to be Bill Clinton attempting to reintroduce one of America's best-known politicians to this country. George, her campaign has long said behind the scenes that he is the secret weapon for her on this campaign trail, and I think tonight he proved himself to be a very valuable asset going forward. Who could be that gullible? The media! Hooray! <laughs> so that was the Democratic convention yesterday. We had we had an accused rapist. We had the mothers of a bunch of thugs, basically. And we had Lena Dunham. It was Lena Dunham yesterday. Yeah, so, so she's confessed to molesting her, sexually molesting her children. All right, so it's the best, the best of America are there before us. Let's move to the mailbag. Woohoo! Uh, from Josh W. Question. Andrew, you've spoken before about morality and how ethics are ultimately founded on some religious belief. I agree that most ethical codes throughout history are founded on the teachings of one religion or another. I myself am a Christian. However, I'm very intrigued by the objectivist ethics of Ayn Rand, whereby ethics and morality are requirements of man's nature as man. Have you considered the objectivist theory of ethics? Yes. I've read, I think I've read it. I don't know if I've read everything Ayn Rand has written, but I've read all of her major works and a lot of her philosophy, and I find that she knew, knows a lot about uh, economics. She is absolutely spectacular when she writes about economics. Most of what she says about economics, I think, comes from Bastiat, who wrote, wrote very short books that explained everything she, she explains in a thousand pages. But no, it's good. You know, she writes these books that people read. When she comes to ethics and aesthetics... I think she is out of her mind. I think she's out of her mind. But let me just give you the simple reason why objectivist ethics don't really... Let's, let's call it the toddler test. If you've had a toddler, you know the toddlers follow you around and they say, why? So you say, well, why is that happening? You say, well, because of this. And they say, why? And you say, well, because of this. Why? Because of this. Because and why? And finally, you know, you have to slap them or drown them or something. You know? <laughs> and the problem with objectivist ethics is it doesn't pass the toddler test. That when you keep asking why, eventually you get to the idea that the real morality that is the essential human morality is to pretend you're doing the right thing when people are watching and then get when you can when they turn away. And of course, real morality is what you do when nobody's watching. And that's the thing that objectivist ethics can't really contain, can't really figure out. Only an absolute moral center, an absolute moral star that guides you is can sustain that kind of morality, the morality of what you do when you're alone. And I've talked about this before, that kind of morality has to be a consciousness, it has to be free to choose, so it has to be an actual person. It has to be uh, God, essentially. And so I think objectivist theory uh, doesn't really work, and when you read her, you can see that the great, right, she doesn't appreciate Shakespeare, she doesn't appreciate all that, you know, she's, there's something skewed and wrong with her. She is said to have uh, glorified a serial killer in her youth, to have had a crush on a serial killer. Something really strange about that woman. Uh, all her relationships in her novels start with rape. Uh, you know, and there was something really wrong with her morality, and I think that's because the objectivist morality doesn't hold up. You can look at the entire country of France, which has been living off that morality for years, and you can see what the result is. All right, from Andrew, my fellow Andrew. 
Can anything convince the left that socialism absolutely sucks? Would Bernie's election an utter failure be of any use compared to a Trump or Clinton presidency? Well, first of all, I am very opposed to long-term solutions where, like the kind of Lenin idea that if I cause enough chaos, that will bring about the revolution. The problem with human societies is that they are as complex as the climate. That's why when people tell me what's going to happen to the climate in 10 years, I don't believe them because it's too complex for a computer system to figure out. So is uh, socialized. So I don't think, you know, Bernie could come in and destroy everything and it could lead to fascism or he could come in and destroy everything and people could just think this is the new normal and we're going to live with this. So, no, I don't think the failure of socialism necessarily teaches people that socialism is bad. They have to have the values that counteract socialism. Our biggest problem, which is going to go away in about 20 years, I would say, is the Europe illusion. That, that Europe has given us the illusion that socialism works because we have paid for their defense. We have defended them. And all of this time, Europe has, in fact, been dying, as we now see, as they're invaded by the Islamists, and they don't have the wherewithal, the patriotism or the belief system or the Christianity to fight back. I mean, their, their mosques are full in France, but their churches are empty. Who do you think is going to win that battle? It's the people who have beliefs. And so this, but for all these years, these years since World War II, we've had this illusion that socialism has been working great in Europe and we should be more like Europe, but we don't understand that they are living in our house. They're living in the garage to our house. We support them with our military. We support them uh, with our medical uh, advances that they don't make because they don't, because they have socialized health care. And so that is the worst thing that's happened to sell socialism. And that's why the young can continue to, that's why Bernie can stand up and talk about Scandinavia, when Scandinavia has been ditching socialism for years. You know, it's just the fact that people are ignorant and people are young and they don't know anything. So, you know, the facts matter. We just have to hope, I think it was Mark Stein who said it, you know, things will, if things cannot be sustained, they'll stop. But the question is whether you stop the bus at the top of the cliff or after it falls off the edge of the cliff. And that's the question no one can answer. From James, Uncle Drew, (laughs) James, my long-lost nephew, I recently pre-ordered your upcoming memoir. Good for you. Thank you very much. The great good thing. Uh, And then in parentheses it says, I love you, Lindsay. Please pick this question for the mail. You know, I'm sick of this. I I mean, you guys aren't even writing. You just want to get to Lindsay. This is it. This is the only reason anybody writes. I can't wait to learn more about your backstory and journey with respect to your Christian faith. Is it safe to assume that any talk of politics will not be present in the book? If that's the case, can we expect more nonfiction that dives into political philosophy? I would like to write more nonfiction, and I hope uh, one of the reasons I'm hoping this book does well is so that I will be able to write more nonfiction and can sell the books, you know, because you have to have time. You have to sell books so you have time to write them, basically. Um, You know, I, I went very light on politics in this book because I believe that Jesus came to save Democrats and Republicans. I believe he has a harder job with Democrats, but that's, you know, that's his problem. But, but, uh, you know, I did go easy on the politics, but you can see where I come from and who I am and what I believe. It's a a book about what I believe and how I came to believe what I believe. So there's a lot in there. Uh, All right. We're going to move on to stuff I like. Um, I love doing the mailbag, I have to say. It's one of my favorite things. So keep writing in and subscribe so you can write in. I was, I've been talking about anti-Soviet movies. I kind of came into my mind after watching Hail Caesar. And then yesterday we were talking about this, this wonderful little TV movie, Citizen X, which no one has ever seen. Although somebody wrote me and said after they listened to the show, they watched the movie and really enjoyed it. 
But the first anti-Soviet movie was made in the magical year 1939, and I call it the magical year because every great movie was made in this year. I mean, I can't even begin, but Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, I think, was 1939. They're all, every movie that you can think of, Mr. D, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I think, was 1939. Talking off the top of my head, I may have gotten it wrong, wrong but just type in 1939 movies, and you will see one great movie after another. One of these was the wonderful Ernest Lubitsch comedy, Ninochka. And Ninochka is the first American movie that portrays the Soviet Union as having a problem. And the problem is this beautiful woman, Greta Garbo, one of the most beautiful women who was ever in film. She started out on the silent screen, uh, and she went in to do this. This, uh, this was uh, the advertisement for Ninochka was Garbo laughs because she was a dramatic actress, but this was a comedy. And she comes over as a so- from the Soviet Union. To st- she comes to Paris to sell some jewels that have been confiscated by the from the uh, upper classes. And she meets Melvin Douglas, who at the time, I-, I can remember as a very, very young man, seeing Melvin Douglas as a very, very old man. But at some point, he was the dashing young guy from silent pictures. This is not a silent movie. And Melvin Douglas starts, picks her up in the train station. And it just shows you the difference between these humorless, sexless Soviet woman and the dashing debonair Frenchman. Here it is. Pardon me, are you an explorer? No, no I'm looking for the Eiffel Tower. I- Good heavens, is that thing lost again? Oh, are you interested in a view? I'm interested in the Eiffel Tower from a technical standpoint. Technical? No, no, I'm afraid I couldn't be of much help from that angle. You see, a Parisian only goes to the tower in moments of despair to jump off. How long does it take a man to land? Uh, Now, isn't that too bad? The last time I jumped, I forgot to time it. Let me see now, the Eiffel Tower. Ah, your finger, please. Why do you need my finger? It's bad manners to point with your own. There, the Eiffel Tower. And where are we? Where are we? Now, let me see, where are we? Ah, here we are. There you are, and here am I. Feel it? I'm interested only in the shortest distance between these two points. Must you flirt? Well, I don't have to, but I find it natural. <laughs> so it's this wonderful celebration of Western relaxed values versus, uh, and you can see where this is going, obviously. She's got to, he's got to melt this iceberg. It was remade in 1957 as a musical called Silk Stockings, written by Cole Porter and starring Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, which was, is really good. I mean, it's a really fun musical and contains this Cole Porter song, which is, if you listen to the lyrics, Fred Astaire was not the sexiest dude around or anything, but if you listen to the lyrics of this song, it is one of the sexiest songs ever written. So here's Cole Porter's uh, song, All of You from Silk Stockings. I love the looks of you, the lure of you. I'd love to make a tour of you the arms the eyes the mouth of you the east west north and the south of you i'd love to gain complete control of you and handle even the heart and soul of you so love at least a small percent of me do for i love all of you 
So Lindsay said that song was a little rapey. Maybe it is, but it's a very, very sexy song. So Nanotchka from 1939 and a 1957 remade of Silk Stockings, both great movies that show the benefits of the West uh, over the Soviet Union. Good stuff. All right. Tomorrow is Thursday already. This week has gone by, but tomorrow we will get to talk about Barack Obama's speech before. The guy must be be biting his tongue that he has to go out and say nice things about this woman that he hates. We will be here. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Stay tuned. And Heather McDonald will be here, too.